This is Janelle Wood, and you are listening to the Finding Something Real podcast. Well, welcome back to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This is your host, Janelle Wood, and you are listening in for season six, where we start out each month or most months with a different young woman sharing her story and allowing her the space to ask some tough questions about God and Christianity. And this month, our content is being curated by a special co-host. That's Alice from Sweden. In our first episode together, Alice shared about her time as an exchange student in the United States. She talked about growing up in Sweden and what could be described as kind of an indifference to religion in general. She candidly talked about having been baptized and confirmed and how she does celebrate Christian holidays, but she also said that she doesn't believe in God and she never goes to church. She talked about things that do matter to her, things like friends and family, But from her experience, God has not been relevant in her life. And whether God exists or not has has not been relevant to any of her friends that she knows of. So despite sharing all that indifference, Alice still came on here. She still shared. And she was very gracious in allowing her questions to be aired here, including, if there is a God, why is there so much trouble in the world? How does religion affect your life? And how did you become a Christian? And even though Alice has chosen or is unable to join us today, she's got some things going on. I'm very excited to welcome today's guest. She's a friend of mine. Alicia Wood is a returning guest who likes to help people sort through their questions on their journey to discovering God. And that is a pretty humble introduction for a woman who has traveled around the world sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. Welcome back, Alicia Wood. Thank you, Janelle. Happy to be back and happy to help Alice and anybody else listening as we think through some pretty good questions that she has. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you're here. In the past, you've talked to Ruby from Taiwan and you talked to Mariah and uh, you've shared some great insights on identity and who we are in Christ. And it's just been really um, just a joy to get to talk to you, Alicia. So we'll link those former episodes in the show notes, but what are you up to these days? Um, and how can people find you after this show's over? Oh, sure. Um, so I work with a great organization called Apologetics Inc. Super easy to find us. We're on the internets. Uh, just go to www.apologetics.org. I mean, it's pretty basic Apologetics Inc. and apologetics.org. You can also find me on Facebook and, uh, Twitter, the Twitter sphere, um, Alicia Wood 88. The number two, the 88, the number is 88 and it's Alicia's A-L-Y-C-A-A. So yeah, those are the ways you can find me or speaking at a place near you. That's <laughs> you awesome. never know where I may pop up. <laughs> I was going to say, I've found you on YouTube and you have some great talks in there too. So Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I never really fully know actually what's up on YouTube because a lot of times people, you know, video you and you don't know and then they throw it up or sometimes... <laughs> They video and you do know, and then you see, and you're like, oh, I guess they, okay, there it is. So you, <laughs> I cannot even fully tell you what is in the YouTube library. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a very dynamic speaker. So um, it's been a while since you've been on here. And yeah. I'm wondering, for those who are not familiar with your story, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit of your own faith journey, especially since that was one of Alice's questions. How did you become a Christian? Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, so we can go back to my little peewee days as a little, little Alicia. Um, I grew up going to church actually, um, went to Sunday school and 
you know, the kids ministry stuff and Sunday church and Sunday evening church and maybe midday, midweek church. Um, and so I don't actually remember ever my conversion. At some point I believed in it was at a relatively young age because I don't ever remember not believing. So whenever my point went, when I was growing up to be like, this is what I believe in, this is what I accept. Whatever point that was, I just don't know. Which is kind of bummer because some people have like a date, you know, April 21st, 2003, right? And I'm like, I don't know when that, when it was. I don't remember it. But grew up going to church and always wanted, to, as I got older, I wanted to go deeper, learn more, study more, understand more. And uh, and I discovered apologetics uh, in college kind of accidentally. And um, it was also in college before I discovered apologetics that I really struggled with my faith and struggled. Um, it was a great, great Christian school, great Bible professor, uh, but just struggled with being able to trust the Bible. And is it really credible? And there's all these other letters out there. How do we know which ones are actually accurate? I understand that, you know, way more in depth now than I did then. But back then I kind of thought, oh, there's a bunch of letters that weren't included. And people just arbitrarily said, well, we're going to put this one in. We're not going to put this one in. We're going to put this one in, but not this one. That's how I understood it at like 19 years old or whatever. But the reality is, is that the letters that weren't included were also not included because they <laughs> were written so late. They weren't written by eyewitnesses or anybody that people couldn't verify the authenticity of the letter, you know, written a hundred or so years later. So, and, and what is in the New Testament are for the most part, eyewitness eyewitness accounts or, or secondhand witness accounts from somebody that was a friend of an eyewitness. So, I mean, it's, it's, I didn't understand that at 19. And so that kind of really made me panic. And, um, you know, I had to wrestle through that. I, you know, I, deconstruction is a big thing right now. And a lot of people are deconstructing their faith. We used to just call that walking away from the faith. It was pretty much the same thing. Uh, you know, and I guess I had that kind of moment where I was like, I don't know if I can really trust this to be true. Hmm. And, um, but then I also kind of felt like, which maybe some people I would say who are going through the deconstruction movement feel as well as I feel like I couldn't tell anybody. You we didn't, we didn't talk about what happens when you have questions or doubts or you walk away. We Nobody talked about that then. And I just didn't really know that that was something that I could talk to people about. I didn't know people doubted. I didn't know people questioned. I didn't know any of that. And so um, when it happened to me, I just kind of panicked and didn't tell anybody and kind of really wrestled with it on my own. But I remember, you know, thinking, okay, Alicia, like, you can say that there's no God. You can say that the, that Christianity isn't true. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't something out there. And because there were certain things that happened in my life that you really couldn't explain um, by natural definitions. You could say natural means there's something supernatural. Some There were certain prayers that I'd offered or in certain words I'd said that had um, other people would repeat those words to me. Um, that God is telling me to tell you this. And I was just, that was something that I had said to God or I just read, like it was just weird stuff that was going on or like I was in need of a certain amount of money that people didn't know about. And then, you know, God, somebody comes in, God's telling me I need to give you this right now. I mean, just stuff that was going on that I was like, I didn't tell people about what was going on in my head or what my situation was, but yet something is hearing me pray. Mm. And so it was one of those things where it's like, I can say that Christianity isn't true, but something heard you something is responding to you something's engaging with you and I I had to say okay well just because you think Christianity isn't true doesn't mean that nothing is true something is true there's only two options either there's God or gods plural or there is not so either it's God gods or there's nothing there's only two options out there and 
Um, so you need to go figure it out if Christianity isn't, isn't true, or well, maybe Hinduism is true, or maybe Muslim is true, or Islam is true, excuse me, maybe Jehovah's Witness faith is true, maybe Mormonism. And you can't just say, oh, Christi Christianity is not true, therefore atheism is true. You can't do that. That's what people do all the time as a default. Christianity is not true, so I'm being atheist. Wrong. <laughs> you don't <laughs> default to atheism. That's what I did. I just mm -hmm. defaulted atheism. So there can't be any God at all. And I had to pull myself back in after several weeks and just be like, no, you got it. That's that's a cop out. Um, go see what else is true. And that kind of helped lead me back on my path uh, mm -hmm. to Christianity. So would you say you were an atheist for several weeks? Yeah. You know, I don't remember the time period. It could be weeks. It could be a couple months. It was very short. Whatever it was, it was very short. It wasn't a very long period of time because I went through like my initial okay, I'm in panic mode. I don't know what to do. Keep it to myself. But then relatively quickly, I was like, you have to solve this. And so in other words, I didn't leave, you know, it's kind of like if you deconstruct a puzzle, you, you know, puzzle is a thousand piece puzzle and you deconstruct it and you get all the pieces spread on the table. They're all the pieces are taken apart and they're all spread around the table. Some people just leave it. I deconstruct it. I leave all the pieces not put together and they go about their lives. That just didn't work for me. I couldn't leave the puzzle undone. And so after a few, you know, whatever amount of time it was of panicking and not knowing what to do and adjusting to a life where there was no God, I was like, okay, but what's my evidence that there is no God now? Like, okay, how do I know that me saying there is no God is actually the true way? Like I have to come back and sort through this. And so I just couldn't leave the puzzle undone. I had to put the pieces back together. And so it was relatively short lived for me because I had to, I, I had to, had to solve it. I had to figure it out. I was a criminal justice major, you know, so we're <laughs> like, I'm just like unsolved cases are not what I'm interested in. <laughs> so you, do you have a special affinity for Jay Warner Wallace then? Oh, Jay Warner Wallace and I, we, it's so fun. Like we, we first, I did an event with him, I don't even know, eight years ago now. And I was like, oh, I cannot wait to meet him because I, I feel like we would totally connect. Anyways, he ended up walking by me. He like stops. We both like do double takes and we're both like, I wanted to meet you to each other. <laughs> And we just talk and we just think the same way. Like everything makes sense when you talk about a crime scene and a court scene. Like it just makes sense when you do it that way, you know? And I just think of apologists as the detectives of mm -hmm. the Christian world, like follow the evidence. So yeah, he is great. We have, we had a good time and just kind of, we just think the same. We just think the same. This one. <laughs> I, yeah, I really think he's an awesome guy. I've had the privilege of meeting him and he was on this podcast earlier this year. It was fantastic getting to talk with him. So Alicia, you mentioned that, okay, so atheism isn't the natural default. There's other things I could look into here. Why Christianity then? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's a good one. Um, so I think, I think there's, and I didn't go as in depth now, as I would say then, I think if you had asked me then, I probably would have said, um, I began to see that the Christian that that I was that the Christian God was the one that was true. But I don't but now I've done way more research than I did would have done at 19 or 20 into these things and understanding it more. So I think my answer now um would be would be slightly different. I actually have a whole talk why Christianity. Um but basically I think Christianity and it's got the most evidence whether it's um, the um, documentation evidence, like the like we got just the manuscript evidence for the for the t the New Testament, um, we know that Jesus lived. He was a wise man. He did a bunch of good things. Um, he had followers. We know that he died on a cross. You know that Pontius Pilate is the guy who put him on the cross. 
And we know something happened three days later. And I don't need the Bible for any of those facts. Those are just written in historical documentation. So you can, you can get a, a general idea of Jesus's kind of what he did, kind of who he was, what he did, a very general, but on that part. But then you've got like, he died, it was Pontius Pilate, which is what the Bible says, but that's also written in extra extra uh, manuscripts that are outside of the Bible. That was Pontius Pilate who did that, who had him crucified. And, and we don't, we have no explanation for his body. Nobody's ever claimed to have his body. Nobody's ever claimed to see his body, steal his body, anything. And clearly his followers felt like he, he rose because they were willing to change everything. So I think, you know, we've got an immense amount of evidence for the resurrection, immense amount of evidence, manuscript evidence for um, the Bible credibility. We have, I think also um, we have uh a belief that that like many other religions gives you a framework of morality, which is really helpful and really important because we are all trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong and how to live and all of these things. And the and the moral framework that Christianity gives you actually makes so much sense. Here's just a little a little silly example. You know, Christianity would say um, sex within um, should happen in the confines of marriage heterosexually. That's that it would not advocate for premarital sex. Um, and it would not advocate for adultery, these kind of things. So the point is that somebody, somebody before, if somebody's going to live together, they need to be married. It's interesting because there's studies coming out now because people look at this stuff and they're like, this is so archaic. It's best now to just live together. Then you kind of know whether or not this is going to work and then you get married. So we kind of try it out by living together and then we get married. So that's a lot, that's kind of the mentality a lot of people have. Well, what's interesting is there's studies that come out. You can look at it. It's psychology today, I believe, is one where it talks about Actually, they've done studies and it and it seems to indicate something different that people who live together before they get married, unless they have unless they're engaged or they have like a wedding date set or they've got a very clear we are getting married now, they actually are more likely to get divorced after their first year of marriage if they've lived together before they got married, which is interesting. Um, and they find that people who didn't live together before they get married, their first year is really tough, right? Because they didn't live together. It's a massive adjustment. It's going to be really tough but they tend to stay married longer. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to me because I look at how the Bible, you know, as, as God, who is the, who is helping us understand uh, how we should best live, how we are best designed to live. You know, we look at that and we think that's archaic. So we do our own thing only on the back end to see the actual studies come out that actually confirm what our designer told us would be the best way for us to have sustainability in marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's stuff like that where I see like, you know, it's not the Bible's morality isn't outdated. It doesn't doesn't fall by the wayside, um, and it's not it's not incorrect, and and so that's really helpful. We've got we and so I I think morality is key. I think you know Christianity giving meaning to life is is key. I think I see so many people con- wanting and and longing to have a connection with to worship something. Period. Just worship something. You know, and and you and I think that's because we were created to worship our creator and our God. And we can and so I just see all of these components that together for me, the case for Christianity or why Christianity is gonna be a much more comprehensive case. It's not built off of one set thing outside of you guess you could say the resurrection, but it's a compilation of many things that point to um the that the the credibility of Christianity. Just like we would say you go to a crime scene and there's a bunch of different things, a bunch of different clues. That can point to this person is guilty of doing this crime. Yeah, DNA is probably the one clincher, mm-hmm. but we but we don't oftentimes don't have that. So you look at the variety of things that point to this is the most logical, rational conclusion. I mean, that's how we do court cases all the time. Yeah. 
So if all that's true, then why is there so much trouble in the world? I know, right? Like, <laughs> God, if you want us to be there and you, you know, gave us all this wisdom and morality and all this evidence for the Bible and meaning in life and identity and value, why is all this suffering, right? Like you forgot one thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Make us happy. <laughs> Uh, I told you before we hit record that I was just listening to Tim Keller. Uh, he was sharing with some young people. They were talking about suffering and problems in the world. And someone asked about natural disasters. Well, what do you do about that? You know, and he's like, well, actually, it's kind of a short answer. And he shared about the fall and stuff. But anyway, yes, I let's talk about that. Because Alice asked, and I think that, you know, for somebody especially who didn't grow up with faith, it's. It's one of those big questions like, okay, if there's a God, then why is there a mess? Why is there such a mess? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that um, it's a question we all have to ask, no matter what religion or non-religion, we're all asking these questions. Philosophers have been asking this question for thousands and thousands of years, right? We all want to know why does life have to be so painful? Because it just is. You know, people we love that die, you know, we get sick, we, 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 you know, suffer from just chronic conditions that are painful. Um, we get disappointed, we get hurt, emotional um, suffering or mental suffering, mental health and all the things that are going on with people being depressed or anxious or suffering. I mean, it's just, the list goes on and on and on, you know? And, and so there's so many different answers based on what religion that you believe in or what view you hold, if you're an atheist, you would simply say, well, why would we expect that there wouldn't be suffering in the world? Like, why do we think it shouldn't be there? There's, you know, DNA doesn't, or um, natural selection, excuse me, doesn't really care about your pain. <laughs> the whole point of natural selection is the weaker die out. Like, it's the strong need to trump the weak. Like, so, or survival of the fittest, I should say, you know, it's about to, the strong need to, need to um, dominate over the weak. So that, I mean, it's built into the system is that, suffering and pain is going to be part of it. Or if you're Muslim, maybe you'd say, you know, well, I, suffering is there because it's what Allah wills and I wouldn't question it. Um, they'll grieve over pain and suffering, but they won't question this is what Allah wanted. And so, I mean, various beliefs have various different responses. And I think I, I, I'm happy to say you know, Tim Keller agrees with me. No, I'm joking. Um, I, <laughs> Tim Keller and I would give the same answer, maybe. You know, like this, it is. It, I think it's a pretty basic answer. And I know there's so many different um, philosophies and ideas on it. Um, but I think at the core, it comes down to the fact that God creates a world in which love is possible. And, and in order for love to exist, people have to choose to not love choose to do also do evil the problem is we think of things very individualistically and um when people do evil it affects us it affects more than just the person they're doing the evil against it affects so many things so when adam and eve um made the decision to you know they want to be like god and be the arbitrators of good and evil um and what that brought into the world is it didn't just affect them that decision didn't affect them it affected it affected all of humanity after them in terms of wanting to do wrong instead of instead of wanting to do right it affected the natural world where bacteria that you know ordinarily just kind of you know are doing their thing all of a sudden become really harmful maybe let's say or 
or it affects, um, you know, our physical bodies to maybe form in a way in which, you know, we don't have a particular deformity or we don't have a particular physical disability. We don't have a particular intellectual disability. I mean, all of these things happen as a result of being in a world that is now in a state that it wasn't supposed to be in. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think God could change it all. But how does he change it once once the process has gotten started and still be a God of integrity in the sense of like, you know, once Adam and Eve do something that causes a cascade of events, if God undoes it, what does that mean? He has to also undo is he also has to undo their memory, their memory of knowing what it was like to turn against him and do their own thing. And now he's got to erase that memory and to bring it, bring it back into something that it was beforehand, before it had this knowledge of what good and evil and everything would have looked like. And that's almost dishonest. Like you, you, it's like you're living in a little bit in a little bit of an illusion here because this wasn't this is the reality he forced upon you now versus the reality that you actually end up creating. And so once a system gets going, it's going. And and you know, the the hope for the Christian is not that the system will end, like that suffering will end now. It's that it will at some point be changed in the future. That the suffering, while painful, is temporary. Um, and in the future will end. And that's ultimately what we talk about. We talk about heaven, this idea of this, of God, or yeah, God dwelling with his people where there won't be any more pain or tears or crying or anything. Yeah, I I love that. When I was listening to Dr. Keller this morning, <laughs> as I was doing laundry, this is, what I, this is what I caught. And maybe I'm totally misparaphrasing here, but he was talking about the fall. And he was saying, when that happened, when sin entered the world, um, it talks about Adam, Adam and Eve and their shame with their nakedness. Mm-hmm. And it talks about now the garden, they would, instead of being in the garden, they would be, you know, working the soil that they, there would be hard labor, that there was something that was supposed to be beautiful, that mm-hmm. now is being morphed, you know, that there was physical, psychological, relational and environmental uh, decay that came into the world. And it was just it was really profound. I wanted, I wanted to go back and like replay it a few times so I could really absorb it, you know, but I thought it's so true. But I, even as a Christian, there are times, you know, like what happened in Maui, uh, not too long mm-hmm. ago, where it's just like, God, where were you? Where yeah. were you in all of that? Yeah. And, um, so for somebody who, it's not just an intellectual objection for somebody who's experienced real suffering. Um, Alicia, what, what comfort is there that God is there in the midst of all of that? Yeah. Well, um, so that's a great question. And I'll speak to that one. I'm going to add on something really quickly to what you were just saying about the garden, because I think even in that moment, you see an aspect of God's mercy and you see God essentially saying, this is not going to be, um, the way things will be for forever. So in Genesis chapter three, um, he, you know, he banishes Adam and Eve from the garden and they, and he basically, you know, sends them out and puts a, a cherubim and a flaming sword um, that flashes back and forth. And he does this to guard the way to the tree of life, which is interesting so in verse 22, Genesis 3, 22, it says, Lord God said, man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. In other words, if they had stayed, if they had, you know, in, even in that garden, if they, if they had still in this new state that they have 
and they they knew under that and that's this post state that they had since before they since when they were created before and now they're in this world of sin and pain. God's like you, you're going to stay away from this tree and live forever. This you're not going to live, keep eating from this tree and live forever in this world of pain. Like there is going to be an end to it. Mm. And so, and it's interesting because in verse twenty four that they are kicked out and they are and they are kept away. That there's a there's a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The idea is that he doesn't want them to go back to that tree, like he says in verse 22, and live forever. So in other words, you can see that there is even in this in this fallen state of now the earth is in a completely different state than what it not what it was. Humanity's in a different state. He's not gonna allow it to be forever. And that's important. Because this is getting back to why this is in Genesis. And you go to the last book about Revelation, while we see that the for, that the, that the end has come to this painful state mm-hmm. of you know people dwelling now once again with God like they were dwelling with him in the garden you see that restoration that closeness and intimacy with God like they had in in the garden and it's also going to be a, a place where there is a garden element there's a city element but there's this tree of life element that's also back in revelation but you also see that once again, like I was saying, that the, there's no more pain and no more tears and no more crying and all of that stuff is gone. And you see this restoration back. And so I think that that's an important part of the end of the story to keep in mind. But still, like, yeah, like where is he in this pain? Because the reality is there's no answer I'm going to give you philosophically or theologically that's going to make you be comfortable with pain. Like, And I wouldn't want that. Like nobody should ever nobody should ever allow anybody to give them an answer that no longer makes them grieve or overseeing a starving child die or overseeing somebody with cancer die. Like this is not supposed to be painless. Like this should always hurt. And this is why we're always keeping asking this question. So we're never satisfied because we keep looking for the answer that's going to take the pain away. And I don't think that's possible. I don't think the pain should go away. The pain should always be there. And so the, the 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 Christian answer in suffering is not that, hey, let's make it so that, let me give you an answer so that you never feel pain again. Mm-hmm. The Christian response to suffering is to, tell, is to let people know that God is with them in the pain. And that's what's unique, is that God doesn't absolve himself from the pain that's in, that we go through, that we're dealing with. Like he is present. And, and, and so I think that that's really important because you look at some you look at Jesus right god intentionally enters into our world he intentionally comes in enters into a world of pain and discomfort goes through excruciating pain where we get the word crucifixion excruciating pain of what the crucifixion was like being whipped and beaten beforehand and then ending up on a cross and he says i'm going to enter into this pain so when you're hurting guess what i know what that feels like mm-hmm. i didn't keep myself away i didn't shelter myself i could have but I didn't shelter myself. And this is important because if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you don't believe that Jesus is God. He is Michael the archangel that is now on earth. And if you're a Mormon, you believe Jesus is one of many gods, but he's not the extreme head God. He's just another created God. Um, So God really doesn't suffer. Jesus is the God of this planet. So God actually doesn't suffer with us. He stays away from it. In Islam, God would never belittle himself to come down to earth and associate with us filthy people. So in Islam, you don't have that either. So you in Christianity, you have a God that says, I'm coming in. Like you are in the hole and you are alone and you are hurting and I'm going to dive in there with you. And we are going to go through this together. And I think that that is unique. And I think that that's special. And I think that that demonstrates what fatherly love um, is to go and go and get 
the one that is hurting and 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 so I, I just think that that is an important piece. And I think that's really where the Christian Christian response is to suffering. It's not in this great answer to make the pain go away, but it's to remind us that he's there. It's mm. good. Okay, going back to uh, some of these questions, and this one isn't necessarily one of Alice's, but it's kind of a piggyback on that. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I was you know, listening to Tim Keller, and we've mentioned him a couple of times in that same talk, uh, as regard in regards to suffering, somebody asked him about suffering caused by other Christians, and he <laughs> said, "Ah, oh, that's a whole other talk." And he said, um, "That's kind of the Achilles heel of the Christian, right?" Because he said, um, "If you're the person asking that question, you have to forgive, and if you're the person on the outside looking at that, I think Brendan Manning said, like, there's no greater cause of atheism in the world today than people and Christians, you know, yeah, than Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and denying with their lifestyle." Yeah, yeah, that's I love what that an quote. unbelieving world finds unbelievable. Yeah. Um, how do you deal with that? I know you've, you're familiar. Uh, how do you deal with the suffering caused by other believers or by maybe in Alice's case, somebody at some point in her life, she may be interested in Christianity and she sees somebody not acting like a Christian who goes around saying, I am a Christian. How do you deal with that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, first of all, I mean, I think she's right. <laughs> There's nothing that frustrates me more, um, you know, than having to know that it's one, I mean, Christians aren't perfect, but it's another thing, I think, to be one who's persistently inflicting pain on somebody else and whatever that pain looks like as a Christian. I think that's just, you know, and, and people um, have valid claims. People have really bad church growing up stories where stuff has happened in church. Um, they've got, you know, Christians that beat down on them because of various things that they've done, or they've got, we've got a lot of Pharisees in the church. So people who, who think that they are, they are um, in a good place with God because they've done a lot of good things. Um, And so therefore they feel like they are, they are completely um, good basically because of the things that they've done. And Jesus handles that. Uh, and he handles it really well. And um, so I think, and, and he puts them in her place basically is what he does. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think I would, I would agree honestly with her and I would say, yep, that absolutely does happen. And I would fully believe it's happened and I've seen it happen. And, and, and I'm sorry for the pain that Christians cause, but this is also why I wouldn't never ask anybody to follow a Christian. Mm. We ask people to follow Christ. That is the difference. And, and, and so if, if, um, if I'm asking you to follow a Christian and the Christian fails you, that's going to be massively devastating for you. Um, but that's why I ask you to follow a perfect being who can do no moral wrong, who can't do anything to you that would be objectionable. And so that is actually where I would point somebody is, look, what I want you to do, it's, it's, it's true. They should be able to look at the church. Matthew 5, 16 tells us that your light shine before men that they may see your good works and want to uh, think that God is amazing, want to um, worship him, want to serve him, glorify God is essentially what he's getting at, right? But we, this idea that few people, what people see in Christians, they will in turn, they will, it will affect how they view God, how they see God. And so that's what's supposed to happen. And then Christians do stupid stuff. 
And so what does that then do? That makes people see of God as a monster or someone that they don't want to associate with or someone who's cruel or someone who's judgmental or someone who's arrogant or someone who's narcissistic or someone, you know, the list goes on. So that's why I want people to understand that Christians are not perfect. We have a calling to be like Christ. We just don't always do a very good job of it. And that's something that we need to own. And so when that happens, what I tell, what I'd really want to encourage people like her to is look to Christ, get to know him. Ultimately, that's who you're following. And as you read him, you're going to find that you're going to really get a better understanding of how far off the mark the Christians were, to be honest, and how much, um, yeah, and just and just really where you need to be and where or who Christ is and the example he can be for you. So that's really where I would encourage her yeah. to do. That's good. That's really good. What difference has uh, finding your identity in Christ made in your life? This podcast is sponsored in part by Faithful Counseling. Life is full of ups and downs, unexpected twists and turns, and sometimes we struggle with all that can come our way. Faithful Counseling will assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist who is also a practicing Christian. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And as someone with a master's degree in counseling psychology and whom at various times in the past 20 or so years has benefited from seeing a professional therapist, I know the value that professional counseling can bring because we all need someone to talk with and Faithful Counseling can help. Please visit faithfulcounseling.com slash finding something real to sign up for professional faith-based counseling. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. There's also a special offer for Finding Something Real listeners to get 10% off your first month at faithfulcounseling.com slash finding something real. Thanks again to Faithful Counseling for being a sponsor of this episode. Friend, if you're enjoying this episode, you may also enjoy exclusive bonus content each month. Finding Something Real is a podcast that has some costs associated with it. We have a website, monthly subscriptions to stay organized. We design things. We like to pay an assistant producer who keeps things going around here, that kind of stuff. We're not in the business of trying to make money, but we are in the business of wanting to keep this show going and be sustainable. So we use Patreon, and if you haven't heard of it, Patreon is the best place for creators to build memberships by providing exclusive access to their work and a deeper connection with their communities. Each month, patrons who support Finding Something Real get a bonus episode where we recap the month's episodes. Often those episodes feature our co-hosts, and they will often share what this journey was like. There's other perks over there too, and it's easy to get involved. Just go to findingsomethingreal.com and click support at the top of the page. We'd love to have you over there in our Patreon community. You know, it's interesting because I think we we really struggle with identity in our culture. We um we we look for our value from oftentimes just external sources. Let me get based on like maybe my job gives me my identity. Maybe my wealth gives me my identity. Maybe my athletic ability or my intellectual ability or whatever, my looks give me my identity. And 
I think having my identity be given, be something that comes from God, I think saves me from wrapping myself up in world in in things that happen in this world that can disappoint me. So if my identity is wrapped up in my job and I lose my job, well, who am I? If my identity is wrapped up in my athletic ability, well, when I turn 50 and I can't run as fast, who am I? Um, and so you lose yourself over the course of time. And even more so, if your identity is trying to be the most best looking person, well, guess what? You're always going to find somebody who's better looking than you. So you never actually feel like you can get to your identity because you're comparing yourself to other people. This is where social media plays a massive part in us not liking ourselves is this is the comparison it forces us to do with other people. And so our identity then becomes something that is conditional upon other people's appearances in the case of looks and these kind of things. That is really discouraging and really frustrating. And it really makes people not like themselves. It's depressing. It makes people not enjoy who they are. And so with that, with all that said, I think I would, I think what's life-changing for me is for me to know that my identity doesn't come from any person around me or any type of field or any kind of profession or anything like that. And that gives me a peace and a security. So let me give you just an example. Um, my identity and is is tied up with how valuable I am. So when God creates all these things on the on, on the planet or in the universe, he bestows on humans something unique that makes give them the special value. And it's this thing called the image of God, that they are unique from every other aspect of creation. And so my value and my identity is tied up in what he says I am. So if I was to go, um, if I was to go to an art to an art museum and see a piece of artwork, a painting or something like that, and I and you know, and I said to somebody, or so the first thing we might say, let's say I went with a friend, you know, we might say, wow, this is really amazing. This is really beautiful. And one of the first things we're going to say is, who is this? Who painted this? And when we see whoever painted it, it's going to impact how valuable that piece of art is. So if I see the name on it is Alicia Wood, people are going to pay about 35 cents for this painting. <laughs> there's no way it's going to be very good at all. I mean, I really can't get past stick figures. Okay. But if somebody sees on this painting that it's Marc Chagall or somebody like that, all of a sudden the value of it rises. So in other words, the designer of the painting, the painter of the painting is the one that makes that painting valuable. Why? Because you are willing to pay a lot of money for the name that's on there because that name is seen as valuable. As Christians, the question is whose name is on us? Who has painted us and written their and written their signature on us? And so because of that, then I know as a created being, it's the creator that gives me value. It doesn't matter what if people think that that my piece of artwork that's me is beautiful or not. Just like you look at look at the art and some people love it, some people hate it. People are so subjective. It doesn't matter. What matters is who is the one who, who created me. And that, that frees me, having my identity found, grounded in Christ, frees me from feeling like I don't know who I am half the time. And I'm not, and frees me from feeling like I'm unsettled with who I am. You know, I'm, I'm watching, there's a lot going on in our culture and I'm seeing this massive struggle with identity and who we are. And, you know, there's a show right now on called Mer People, I think, about people who want to be mermaids. And not necessarily 
really mermaids. Like they they know they're putting on, um, you know, a silicon fin and you know these kind of things. But you're just, it's just there's a there, for some people it's like they just love doing it. It's super fun. For other people, it's like that's where their value comes. It's like they don't like who they are. They're uncomfortable in their own skin, and this gives them more of who they want to be because they don't like their current identity. You know, and you see this even with several of the other movements that are happening in our culture, whether they're transgenderism, where we're not comfortable with who we are in our own skin, especially when it comes to young teenage girls. They're not comfortable with their own bodies, not comfortable going through puberty, all these things, and they want to be somebody else. And and that's, and that's so you, you, having our identity in the wrong places really binds us up. And to and helps and causes us to struggle to really find the ability to love ourselves. So true. Um, you know, I don't remember if it was the last time you were here, or the time before, but you pointed out, I think it's in Romans where it says, "There's no one righteous, no, not one." And it was really a moment for me because I thought, man, that's so true. And later on in conversations, it's come up. I brought it up a few times. Um, and this question has come up on the podcast a few times as well. Leonie from Germany brought it up uh, last year. She said, okay, so the message of the gospel, the Christian message is that you're not, you're messed up. You're messed up. You, you're, you don't, you're part of that fall, right? Like mm -hmm. you're a sinner and yet God loves you. Um, but it's completely different from the world that says, if you just love yourself enough, if you just figure it out, it's going to be okay, right? Just love yourself more. Um, how is that good news to know that we are sinners in need of a savior and uh, instead of the message of the world, which is just love yourself more and accept yourself, be comfortable in your own skin more? Well, I think, and I think one of the differences is it changes on who the burden falls to fix us. If we say just love yourself, love yourself, love yourself, then you're saying if I do these things, I can make myself better. I mean, and that does happen. And I think we should love ourselves. Nothing about loving ourselves. I mean, I think that's, I think that's important. I think that's good. We should love ourselves. But I think that we have to also recognize that there are certain things about ourselves that we can't fix. So why is it that even though I love myself, I still gossip about this person or why is it even though I still love myself I still have a tendency to be mean towards this one or why is it that even though I love myself I still tend to be very selfish in other words loving ourselves is great and it's good but it doesn't fix these other parts of us that we seem to not be able to stop doing or overcome and when I say okay clearly I don't have the ability to always get this right. We just talked about Christians who are always failing and messing up um, or, you know, mistreating others. You know, so clearly if I struggle to get this right, then with myself and, I, and, I, and I'm loving myself as much as I can, but I'm still disappointing myself, then maybe I'm not the one who can save me from me. Like maybe I'm not the one who can fix me. And I think that's, that's why it's, it's, you know, we think of, it's a funny name. You know, I remember for years thinking, you know, we call Good Friday, Good Friday, but that was the day Jesus was crucified. And we call it Good Friday. Like, how was that good? 
He was tortured and crucified. How do we call it good? Well, because for us, it was. Because on that day, God began the process of fixing what had been wrong, fixing the brokenness in us. And he completed it when Jesus rose from the dead. But this idea that we can become, you know, the, the Bible says in, um, oh, goodness, is it Philippians? I can't quite remember. But it's God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Mm. And this idea is that I'm struggling to be as, quote, unquote, good as I want to be because I'm loving myself as much as I can. And I'm still struggling. But then you see verses like that where God works in us to to actually do the things that we ought to do. And so it, 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 it helps explain. It helps relieve me from having to be the one to save me. Like I can say, look, I messed up and I need help. And let him be the one to help me be the person that I that I want to be and that I should be, that I was created to be. And so I think, I just don't think we have as much um, ability, power to do some of the things that we want to do that we think we do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, it's it's actually surrendering that and saying, I don't have the ability to fix me. And that actually frees you, takes the burden off of you. Yeah. Well, if we wrap up here, um, Alicia, do you have any thoughts? Let's say Alice listens to this episode a few years from now. Maybe she's in a place where she's more curious or maybe she's even listening this month. I don't know um, about Jesus. For somebody who has grown up in a culture where it's just not relevant in her mind, um, what compelling reason is there for someone like that to look into what we've just been talking about? Yeah. Well, I guess I would say to Alice, first of all, thank you for your questions. Thank you for even being willing to engage and think about some of these things. But Alice, don't let your culture determine what you will learn about. Don't let the culture determine what you understand to be true or what you think about is true. Um, Cultures can lead us in all kinds of ways. It, it would be the same thing I would say to somebody who grows up in a culture where it runs as a theocracy, where whatever religion of that culture is the governing body. We don't let the culture, whether it's a religious one or, or a non-religious one, to determine for us what is truth. We each need to go and look for it ourselves because it impacts everything you do. If there's a God or if there's not a God, impacts what you do. Why? Because if there's not a God, well, then we aren't valuable at all. We are just DNA machines. We just uh, reproduce. And our goal and our purpose here is to reproduce and produce more of us and to outsmart all the other species so that they don't eliminate us. Okay? So there's no value to you as as a human. So you're going to treat people like they don't have value. I have a friend who's an atheist and cannot wait for the human species to be eradicated because they are so destructive to the planet. She sees no value in human beings at all. Um, It's one of the reasons why she did not want to have children because she didn't want to add any humans to this world. And so consequently, there's no value in humans. Can't wait for them to be eliminated. But that is completely, she is completely in line with atheism. She's completely honest about atheism. If we live as if humans have value, you're borrowing ideas outside of atheism because atheism won't tell you that. So if you think that humans have value, you already are going against your culture. You're actually not in line with your culture. If you think 
that there are certain things that are right and there's certain things that are wrong. Well, a non-religious atheistic culture is not going to tell you that because morality is going to be determined based off of maybe what helps the species to survive. So something may be wrong today, but if we learn 20 years from now that it's actually beneficial for our species to do what this wrong thing is, we can easily change it because we need to do what's beneficial for the species. Or maybe we need to do what hurts the smallest number of people. Maybe that's what we need to do. But then why not bring back slavery? You know, if slavery slavery harms a small number of people in comparison to the many people it benefits. So why not bring back slavery? But if you think that there are certain things that are right and wrong, well, then, Alice, you've already gone outside your culture. You're already thinking outside your culture and beyond your culture because your culture isn't can't advocate for there being an absolute right or wrong. It can only advocate for a subjective right or wrong, which can change. And so I would say all of these things, including meaning of life, and, and the list goes on and on and on. We already in our day-to-day lives have probably a mixed views, a mixture of things that come from a variety of sources. If you are not religious, come from a variety of sources. If you're religious, you like get a lot of your views from your religion. But if you're not religious, you're probably pulling little pieces from different religions that you like. So the question is, then which one of those religions that you're pulling information from is actually right? And I think we all need to go on that journey. I think you need to know that it's worth looking into seeing what religion is actually accurate. Because just like you need evidence for religion, you need evidence that there is no God as well. And so I just think I would encourage everybody to go on the journey. Take a journey. Like I said, there's only two options, God or gods or not. Once you determine that there is a God, that's when it gets a bit more complicated because now you're like, which one? But there's only two options out there. And it sounds to me that many people are really not happy with a nihilistic, atheistic type world where people don't have any value. There's no meaning to life. Morality is subjective. We actually think that there's certain things that are right and wrong. We actually think humans are important. We actually want to know that what we're doing in life matters. What's the point of finding the cure for AIDS if we're all just going to die when the universe contracts basically upon itself in whoever X number of years? You know, does it matter? And all of these things are good questions for us to ask and to think through. And so I would encourage Alice to, to consider for her own self to find out where her views, what religion is, her, what, what, what religion might be impacting her views even now that she's not realizing it. But either way, she needs to wrestle with truth. And so Alice, I would encourage you, my dear, to consider going on a truth journey to see what's out there. And I'm not saying you need to decide today and what's true. I'm saying get on the journey. Walk down the journey, learn some things, and see where you land. And my hope is that you land on the ultimate truth, which is that there is a God who came to earth to save you from you, really, from the things that you just couldn't get right from the confusion that you feel in your life, the confusion we all feel in our life, and to bring you back into relationship with a God. Because as long as you're out of relationship with him, you're just going to feel lost. It's like something isn't fully fulfilled. Something isn't fully satisfied in me. And so I would encourage you, and I would hope that that's where you would land, that you would land on the truth of knowing truly who your creator is and what he did for you. Wow. Amen. (laughs) Alicia, final question. You've gotten it before. The Finding Something Real podcast is about a journey towards restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. 
real is an acronym for restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. Which of those things that can be found in relationship with Jesus Christ stands out to you the most in your life right now and why? Can you read them to me one more time? Restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love. I think restoration is probably the thing that stands out to me the most. Um, I started out in prison ministry, juvenile detention centers, um, and then going on to men's prisons, been, been in a women's prison before. And those places, when I go and I go to the church services, are all about people who have been restored. People who were broken, considered ugly and filthy by society, but have been brought into relationship now with their creator and are, and they know that they are beautiful again. <clears throat> and I think to me, I think the idea of restoration has been what's been sitting with me for a long time. The fact that we can be made beautiful again, we can be made into something new, something better. And that, you know, our lives aren't defined by the worst things we ever did or by what other people think of us. And so I think that is something that I think is really special to me right now. Mm. I love that. Well, Alicia Wood, thank you for coming back on the podcast. Hopefully we'll get to see you again until next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Finding Something Real podcast, friend. This season, we are inviting young women to join me as they share their personal stories and ask honest questions or share objections to the Christian faith. We hope to feature a different story each month and then invite Christian guests on to share from their own journeys and experiences and maybe answer some of those questions in follow-up episodes. Friend, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is still in the restoration, eternity, authenticity, and love business. I know not everyone has experienced that, but if you're curious at all at whether there's something real to be found in Jesus, I invite you to come back next week as we continue on a journey towards finding something real in relationship with Him. Until next time.